Great to see you this morning. Uh, take your Bible again, if you would, and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. That's the text that we'll uh, be unpacking together this morning. And uh, what I want to do is, uh, uh, I thought it was 50 years ago, but it was uh, 49 years ago, I was encouraged to get a copy of J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament. So I wanted to read our passage from J.B. Phillips' translation. But he says, but although we give these words of warning, we feel sure that you whom we love are capable of better things and will enjoy the full experience of your salvation. God is not unfair. He will not lose sight of all that you have done, nor of the loving labor which you have shown for his sake in looking after fellow Christians as you are still doing. It is our earnest wish that every one of you should show a similar keenness in fully grasping the hope that is within you until the end. We do not want any of you to grow slack, but to follow the example of those who through sheer patient faith came to possess the promises. When God made a promise to Abraham, he swore by himself, for there was no one greater by whom he could swear, and he said, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And then Abraham, after patient endurance, found the promise to be true. Among men, it is customary to swear by something greater than themselves. If a statement is confirmed by an oath, that is the end of all quibbling. So in this matter, God, wishing to show the heirs of his promise even more clearly that his plan was unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath, so that by two utterly immutable things, that is, the word of God and the oath of God, who cannot lie, we who are refugees from this dying world might have a powerful source of strength, and we might grasp the hope that he holds out for us. This hope we hold as an utterly reliable anchor for our souls, fixed in the innermost shrine of heaven, where Jesus has already entered on our behalf, having become, as we have seen, high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 6 is a message for those who find themselves in the waiting rooms of life. What's interesting as I was looking at this set, it was 45 years ago that I preached this very text as my farewell message at the end of my first ministry in Denver. And we as Lincolnites live in a rare world in that there are longevity of pastoral leadership. Pastor Gill up at Indian Hills has been there 53 years. Kurt Lehman, Lincoln Berean, was there for over 35 years. Bill Thornton at Capital City was there for 30 years, and now another 12 years at F Street Church. Dave Argue, well over 25 years. Brian Clark, 29 years now at Lincoln Berean. That is most unusual. The national average for pastors staying in their ministry is four years for the senior pastor and 18 months or less for youth pastors. Baptists have a little better track record than that. The Baptist average is eight years for a senior pastor and just shy of three years 
for youth pastors. So we come to a season at Faith Bible Church that is not untypical for churches. Jesus loves his church. He builds his church. But it is a rare world we live in, in that God has graced our city with such longevity. That's why this passage is first of all a, a word from the Lord to my own soul as I process through it. It's not just for me, but many of you are find yourself, as said in last night's, if you're unfortunate enough to get to Saturday night notes, is that the, the most offensive four-letter word in the Bible is the word W-A-I-T, wait. If you find yourself in the waiting room of life, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, is God's word to you. And what he says in chapter 5, verse 11, is that there's a lot more I would like to say to you about the high priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, but that we have so much to say it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Literally, you have lost your dedication and your discipline. You become lazy learners. So he goes on and picks it up then with this incredible warning in the middle that if, if, you, if you verbalize that you are following and committing to this Jesus, but you repent from that repentance and you go back to where you were before, the word is impossible. It is impossible to renew you to the relationship again. It is a, in our family, we say, once you have squeezed the toothpaste out of the tube, you can't put it back in. That's the warning that he has given us in chapter 6 in the middle. But then he says, I've got better hope for you, so let me encourage you how to press forward. And he instructs us here in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. That's our desire that all of you finish well, so that you may not be sluggish or lazy, but become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In Romans chapter 15, he says this, for whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he instructs us here to, as we said two weeks ago, choose your heroes wisely. And then he goes on to say, let me suggest a hero by which you could model your faith. And he suggests Abraham. He speaks of two things in verse 12. The imitators of those who through faith. When he's talking about faith here, he is speaking in terms of that practical awareness that we are but strangers, pilgrims on the earth. We are only here temporarily. We're not here for a long period of time. So faith recognizes that there is a life after this life and it rests its hope in the person of Jesus and it continues to hold on to that. Ray Stedman, one of my heroes of Bible teaching, put it this way. I think he was kind of like the father of the dad joke or something. So he says, if your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because it's faulty from the first. I like that. If your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because it's faulty from the first. That's his take on Hebrews chapter 6. Faith recognizes 
that, that we are only pilgrims in passing here. But our home is over there. And so we hang in there. We endure. We press on. We don't put down our roots too deeply here. We don't hang on too tightly to our possessions here. We don't treasure our lives here to the extent that we forget that we're only here temporarily. But we're going home. The second word that he uses is the word patience. Patience is the same word as for long-suffering. It simply means to bear up long under the weight or the pressure. It is defined as the tranquility of a mind that is not easily provoked or wearied by time and or by trials. Or better said, it is a quiet soul waiting on Him. Patience. Knowing that He is sovereign. He's in control. And we trust in Him. And then He comes to verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since He could find no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by Himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, I will multiply you, I want you to turn in your Bible back to the book of Genesis. Let's look at the promise that God made to Abraham. We're introduced to Abram in Genesis chapter 11 in Ur of the Chaldeans in the Persian Gulf region where he is the son of an idol-worshiping family and God leads his father and his nephew and Abram and his wife Sarah about 600 miles up to Haran. When we come to chapter 12, God comes to Abram now 25 years later in Haran, and he says to him, he says, I want you to follow me and I will bless you. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram packs up his household and he travels nearly 500 miles to the land of the promise, the land of Canaan. When he arrives there, he gets there just in time for a famine and a drought. In desperation, he packs up his household and they escape all the way to Egypt where when he arrives there with his octogenarian bride, she and that she is beautiful in his eyes, he says to her, he says, well, you know, he says, just tell them that you're my sister because somebody's going to see your beauty. They're going to snuff me out and they're going to take you as their wife. And then God steps in, intervenes, rescues them, sends them out even more wealthy when they arrive. And when they get back to the land at the end of chapter 13, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look at the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, western. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length of breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abram at this point is older than 75 years in age. Chapter 15. Slowly over time, the promise of God made to Abraham, he not being blessed to have David Jeremiah's daily Bible reading or John MacArthur's Through the Bible in a Year or Alistair Begg on podcasts. He's simply believing the word of God as God speaks it to him. He begins to despair. And he goes to God in Genesis chapter 15 and says, God, I'm sorry, I, I, I made the mistake of taking you literally at your word. I understand that what you were saying was is that simply some young man born into my household would be the heir of the promise. And so Eliezer is the firstborn servant child. And so certainly you want to bless Eliezer. And God said, no. 
That's not what I had in mind. He took him outside, verse 5. And he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, and he said, so shall your offspring be. And this great testimony of the gospel. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Chapter 17. By this time now, Abraham is 99 years old, 24 years after the promise is made, nearing his 100th birthday, he still doesn't have the child. And Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said to him, I am the God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me, and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Every time he signed his debit card check, he said, Father of many nations. And the guy, the clerk would say, So how many kids do you got? He said, Well, uh, none so far, but I'm expecting some. And he goes, Aren't you about 100 years old? I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. He repeats it again in chapter 18. Before he strikes down Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham all that he has promised him. 25 years, nearing his 100th birthday. His wife is approaching her 90th birthday. And still he is hanging on to the Word of God. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 puts it this way. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Come back to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is a final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God gave his word, but he condescended to recognize the frailty of humanity. And he says, I'm going to swear a pledge to you. Go back to Genesis chapter 22. What happens in Genesis 22 is that God has now fulfilled the promise of a son. And the beauty was is that he gave him Isaac. Isaac is doing well and Abraham and Sarah enjoying the life in their tent again. And then God speaks to him and he said, I want you to take your son. 
I want you to take your only son. If you have any confusion about that, I want you to take Isaac. I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. So without discussion and without debate, it tells us that Abraham got up early the next morning, and he saddled the donkey, he took the wood, and he took his son and his servants. And they made a three-day journey to the foundation of the mountain where Jesus would ultimately be sacrificed for you and for me. And he arrived there and he said to the servants, you guys stay down here. My son and I will go up. We will worship the Lord and we'll return to you. And they're climbing up the side of the mountain. And the little boy looks at his father. And he says, we've got the wood and we've got the fire. But where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And his father said, my son, don't worry. God will provide for himself the lamb. The young man submitted to his father. He was bound and laid on the wood on the altar. And as the knife was about to descend, the angel of the Lord stepped in. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I have taken an oath. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God gave him a promise. He gave him a promise based on his own character. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, God gave this warning that you are not to swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord. He goes on to say here in Hebrews chapter 6, so that by two unchangeable things where it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to our hope. Two things. What are those two things? The promise of God and the oath of God. On the basis of those two things, Abraham pressed forward. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul said, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their eternal hope, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time, manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, Hebrews chapter 11, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God gave his word. God condescended to human frailty. And he swore an oath. And he made it possible, as verse 18 says, we who have fled for refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. It is an Old Testament picture of the cities of refuge. In the book of Numbers, it is said that when they move into the land, they to establish six cities that will be refuge cities, three of them on the eastern shores of the Jordan River and three in the land. 
What would happen is if, if you accidentally caused the death of someone, that before their relatives, even the score, if you could escape to a city of refuge, you would stay there until the high priest died, and you would be safe as long as you stayed within the city of refuge. The thing that came to mind when I was reading that is uh, my first associate pastor uh, in Gothenburg, it was, a, it was an Italian from Garfield, uh, New Jersey, and uh, when we were going through the uh, wedding invitation list, he, he had an uncle, he really wanted to be there, but uh, all but his father and one uncle were members of the mafia, and uh, his uncle had a contract out on him. As long as he stayed in the state of Nevada, he was safe. But if he ever crossed the state lines, he was a dead man. So his uncle didn't get to come to the wedding. That's what it means to be a refuge, to stay in the city and you're safe. And when the high priest died, you could go back home and resume. We have a refuge where we are safe, guilty, deserving of death. But because by faith we flee to him, we are safe. You think it goes on to say another metaphor is that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You see, when you're from the flatlands of the Platte Valley, the only thing we know about lakes in the Platte Valley is that they're they're like uh, little interstate sand pits that were dug when they put 880 through. We call them lakes, we just throw some fish in there and jump in a canoe and go fishing. But An anchor is not familiar to us if you grew up in farm country, but it is a, a heavy piece of metal with some tongs on it that is dropped over the edge of the boat and it, it, it finds its way to the bottom of the sea and it wedges itself in the rocks or the stones, something more solid than mud and mire, so that when the when the winds and the waves strike the boat, though it may rock the boat and it may scare you a bit, it's not going anywhere because it's anchored. Now the beauty of what he does here is you see when you're in a boat and you drop anchor, you literally drop it over and it goes down. This anchor went up. And he took it into the room behind the curtain. This is a cutaway so that you can see. So in the court out in front, the first thing you would come through when you came through the gate was the altar of sacrifice where sins were atoned for. Beyond that was the brazen labor where the priest would wash his hands in order to prepare himself to go into the holy place, which is the front room. And they would go in there every day and every week they would change the bread on the table of showbread. Every evening they would put more uh, incense on the altar of prayer. They would keep the candelabra lit. They would go in there daily, but once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer sacrifices, first of all, for his own sins, and having done that, then he would change his garments and he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. He would take the blood of the sacrifice, he would go through the curtain. The curtain was the division because this is the Holy of Holies. This is the presence of God. We only cut it away. Don't worry, it's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark and the skin's not going to fall off your face or anything. We cut it away because that is the Ark of the Covenant and the top of it is the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and God would see the repentance of the hearts and he would forgive their sins for another season. It says that Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies. Literally, he has gone back to heaven into the very presence of God. And there in the presence of God, he did what was totally unheard of in the ark and the tabernacle. And that is, he sat down. 
The high priest went in there. He got the blood sprinkled and the work done as rapidly as he could so that he could get out lest God should disapprove of the sacrifice. But Jesus went beyond the veil into the presence of God and the work was finished and he sat down dropping the anchor up there so that no matter what winds assault us, no what trials come our way, that though we may be tossed here and there a bit, we're not going to move because He is not going to move. He enters into the inner place behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a, this is another one, another, a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. By a forerunner, it is simply the promise that there is one leading the way with the expectation that we too will follow. No one dared go beyond the curtain. But when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. God himself took the dividing veil and he ripped it from the top to the bottom. Jesus went in there as a forerunner, inviting us to come as well. So what is this three times repeated? Verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of your hope to the end. Notice verse 18, that we have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19, we have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. What is this hope? I want you to follow me on a series of references. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Notice verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, notice verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us, who has put also His seal upon us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1, notice verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He put the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit on you, promising you that there would one day be a grand wedding ceremony when He takes you as His bride, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. One more. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3. to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we would be called the children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we do know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So we come back to Hebrews chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Back to the theme after the order of Melchizedek. So the question that we have, how do we take this exposition and make it an exhortation? We ask the question, so what is the promise that God has made to us? I hope that it's not that I'm going to have another child at age 100. I hope that his purposes are something different than that. First of all, his promise is that he will supply our every need. Philippians chapter 4. Secondly, he has promised that he will hear our every prayer. Matthew chapter 7. Third, he has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13 and Matthew 28. He has promised to fully forgive every one of our sins. Ephesians chapter 1. He has promised to strengthen us by the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3. He has promised to complete our perfection until the end. Philippians chapter 1. And greatest of all, He has promised to bring us safely home. Colossians 3 and Hebrews 6. Part of what the Spirit of God was stirring in the thoughts of my heart came more clear when I sat twice in the last week with Brother Dave McCune, who had befriended me 37 years ago, and we had the great delight of doing ministry together. Dave commented that, look what God allowed us to do if we just, when we were just simply obedient enough to walk through the doors he opened. And on Tuesday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and by Friday at 4, he was in heaven. Dave said, Tom, life is short. When God opens the door, you've got to walk through. Abraham 
lived long enough to see the twins born. Isaac got married. He lived with a, with a wife who was without child and miserable for 20 years. And then he had the joy of holding Jacob and Esau. But that wasn't enough. God had promised something more, that through his family line, all the nations would be blessed. He didn't get to live long enough to see the Messiah who would be born to his family line. In his holy discontent, he said, these all died in faith, Hebrews 11. Not having received the things promised, that is the Messiah, the Savior, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were yet strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, that is Ur of the Chaldeans in the Persian Gulf or Aaron up north, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city whose builder and maker was God. President Teddy Roosevelt went on a safari to Africa to, to bring inventory back for a museum. He brought 512 slaughtered animals back for mounting. It just happened that on the boat ride back from Africa, there was not only the entourage with the president and all the hunters and everything, the press, and all. there was also an elderly missionary couple who had given their adult lives to faithfully serve the gospel in the land of Africa. When they arrived in the bay in New York City, there were bands and photographers and press and fans cheering for the president. But the elderly couple carried their own suitcases and they exited the boat alone. It finally was more after riding all the way across with the president getting all the attention, it was almost more than the retiring missionary gentleman could take. And with a bitter spirit, he said to his wife, it's just not fair. All he did was go over and kill some animals and they made a hero out of him. We gave our lives and there's nobody here to welcome us. She graciously slipped her hand into his and she said, honey, it's okay. We're not home yet. I first heard John Piper preach in 1978. Nobody knew who the wiry, curly-haired little preacher was or who he was going to become. He's a brother-in-law of a close friend of mine, and we were in Duluth, Minnesota at the Baptist General Conference. John Piper had a keynote address, and he began, brothers, sisters, we're Baptist. But Hebrews 6 is a serious warning. And the first message I ever heard John Piper preach was from Hebrews 6. One of his recent devotionals on Desiring God said this, There is one person whose worth and honor and dignity and preciousness and greatness and beauty and reputation is more than all values combined 10,000 times more, namely God himself. So when God takes an oath, he swears by himself. If he could have gone higher, he would have gone higher. Why? 
to give you strong encouragement in your hope. What God is saying and swearing by himself is that it is impossible that he will break his word of promise to bless us as it is that he would ever despise himself. God is the greatest value of the universe. There is nothing more valuable or wonderful than God. So God swears by God. And in doing that, he says, I mean for you to have as much confidence in me as it is possible to have. For if more were possible, Hebrews 6.13 says he would have given us that. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now this is our God. The God who is reaching as high as he can to inspire your unshakable hope in him. So flee to God for refuge. Turn from all that superficial, self-defeating hope of the world. Put your hope in God. There is nothing and no one like God as a refuge and a rock of hope. Brothers and sisters, we're not home yet.